0: And if you ever hear the question, why we make these kinds of investments into our students, into kids, into our community, the answer is pretty simple. It's because that's, that's what love does. And we've been talking about this for the past few weeks. We, we don't want to just say that we care, we want to follow the example of Jesus. And we want our words to be backed up by our actions. So here at Plum Creek, we can't just say we're all about leading people to to a life-changing relationship with Jesus. We actually have to do something. So we have made a commitment to take action locally, in our community, but also around the world. That's why I'm excited about our special guest coming to bring the message this morning. Many of you already know Tom Schneller. He's been an important part of Plum Creek for many years now but he's also been used by God as a catalyst to help bring people to Christ all over the world. I asked Tom if he would come and preach this morning because I knew that he could give us a global perspective on what love does. So, let's all welcome Tom here this morning. Thanks, Doug. Certainly it's
1: good to be here uh, this morning and appreciate the opportunity to share. Thank you, Troy. Uh, we're in our last uh, message, On Love Does, and the title of this morning's message is The Heartbeat of God. And my task over the next 30 minutes is to share with you what is it that is at the heartbeat of God? What is it with every breath, with every second of every day? Since the beginning of time when the earth was populated by peoples, what is at his heartbeat and even still today? That's going to be a challenge for me in many regards. First of all, those of you who know me know that it's difficult for me to share anything of great depth in 30 minutes. I'm a little long-winded. So that's going to be challenge number one. But challenge number two is going to be that I'm going to be sharing some things that possibly we've never really studied and looked at, and it's going to be a lot of things to digest, and so I'd encourage you to take out your bulletins. If you look, normally there's a fill-in-the-blank section there for your notes. If you look, it's just blank. So just fill out notes, go through that. I'll be giving a lot of scriptures here throughout the morning, and uh, chew and contemplate on this throughout the course of, of this week on the things that we're going to be taking a look at. But what is it that is at the heartbeat of God. That's the task at hand here this morning. Rather than tell you up front uh, what it is that's at the heartbeat of God, I'm going to try to walk us through a couple of myths, three myths in particular, that keep us from understanding what it is that is at the will of God and the heartbeat of God. But before we dive in today, uh, let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for opportunities such as this when we could come together to worship you, to praise you for who you are, not only for what you've done for us, but what you're doing throughout the world, and ultimately, uh, Father, we can see this grand scheme unfolding uh, to, to a day that uh, you will send your Son back to earth again. We thank you uh, for uh, your Word that instructs us and guides us, but most importantly, uh, tells us of who you are and what your great plan and desire is. So Lord, over the moments that we share this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be the interpreter, that he will speak to each of our hearts, and Father, that uh, the word spoken today will come from you, that it will help us as your church to carry out your job, to accomplish your purpose, and ultimately to give you glory. So Father, uh, bless these moments together, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first myth that I would like for us to uh, look at today has to do with our view of the Bible. How do we view the Bible? Often, our approach in viewing the Bible is often how we approach maybe our high school yearbook. You know, uh, I, I don't have one. Kathy Rice let me, uh, uh, the, the, my senior yearbook. But, uh, you know, what do we do usually when we come across our high school yearbook? What's the first thing that we do? Well, you want to search in there and, aha, there I am right there. Whoa, that was just a couple years ago. A lot of years ago, should I say. <laughs> you know, But we look through the high school yearbook, we look at our picture, and then we begin looking at our friends, and then we begin looking in the front and the back, and sections on the notes that they wrote to us about, and hey, here's even some others that are doing the same thing, if they come across their yearbook, you know, quite a, quite a few years ago, but that's what we do, isn't it? We, we go into there and we want to find out, hey, what, I was in there, I, I was in this group, I did that, here's my picture, etc. It's, it's, it's really all about us is what we think when we go into our high school yearbooks. Well, oftentimes we take that approach to the Bible. When we dive into the Bible, we think, hey, it's all about us. What is in here for me? What is this about that serves my purpose here today? So the first myth that I would like for us to debunk is that the Bible is all about me. Think about that. The Bible is all about me? What's wrong with that? Thinking, well, it's not necessarily incorrect to think that. It's just incomplete to think that the Bible is all about me. When in actuality, the Bible is all about God. You see, God is the one that is bringing peoples to himself from all uh, throughout the world and the book, the the Bible is actually a book of history it's a book of his story of how he's redeeming men from every tongue tribe and nation throughout the globe to come before him to worship him and so the Bible is a book all about God rather than about me It isn't necessarily that we go to the Bible to find out how we are to live and to find out about the character and the nature of God and how we can be possibly comfortable and safe and secure and worry-free and live a comfortable life here on earth as much as it is about giving God glory. You see, that is the purpose of our life, why we are here placed on this earth. It's not just so we can enjoy life. We've been given the purpose here on this earth to bring glory to God And all throughout Scripture, we see this theme over and over and over again. oftentimes we read through this and we just pass by not fully understanding that the Bible is all about Him and giving Him glory. Let's go through a couple passages here in the Old Testament. First of all, in 1 Chronicles, we read about the glory of God. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all peoples. In Psalm 8, we read, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name! In all of the earth, you have set your glory above the heavens. The psalmist writes in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God. Habakkuk 2, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jumping into the New Testament, a few passages of Scripture. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew writes, In this same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Romans, chapter 3. Paul writes, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, are you beginning to see the purpose of why we're here on this earth? In giving God glory? 1 Corinthians, we read chapter 10, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And then in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, talking about that one day when Jesus will return. At, and at that, the name of Je- at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Bible is so full of references of what our purpose here is on earth, of why He has created mankind. It's to give Him glory. You know, it seems a little bit selfish, doesn't it, that that's what it's all about? Isn't it about us? (laughs) But you see, we're not talking about just anyone. We're talking about God of the universe, our Creator. And if that's what God's plan is and why He's placed us here, why should we uh, fight against that? It's all about Him. This is why we've been placed. This is what we read in the Scriptures. If we go to the Scriptures and put on this filter, thinking, what is the Bible going to say to me and about me and for me? How is it going to benefit me? What can I get out of this rather than what does God get out of this? Then maybe we're not 100% correct in our theology. If we go to the Bible thinking, what do we get out of this only? Our theology maybe is really a meology rather than a theology. You see the difference there? Meology goes to see what it's about us and how it can benefit and bless us. But when we go into Scripture, we're to see not only how we are blessed, but more importantly, how we can be then that blessing to others so that ultimately glory is brought to the Father who is in heaven. In the year 2003, a man by the name of Bob Shortgren wrote a book called Cat and Dog Theology. Uh, And in it, he compares the God-given traits and characteristics of cats and dogs to certain theological attitudes that Christians have about their relationship uh, with God. Um, And and, and it's quite uh, uh, interesting to to find out. Uh, You know, we, we, I think, generally know the differences between the cat and the dog, correct? I mean, they have different attitudes and personalities. Just by a show of hands here, how many of you are uh, cat people out there and have maybe cats at home? Show of hands, how many of you have cats at home? Okay. Very good. How about the other show of hands? How many of you have dogs at home? Oh, boy, you guys outweigh the dogs. Outweigh. Okay, now the other question. How many of you have both cat and a dog? Okay, some of you there. Very good. Well, if you have both animals, you, you know their differences in their characteristics. You know, cats are cats. Dogs, well, they're, they're, they're dogs. But the easiest way to describe this cat and dog theology is put in this way. Dogs, for example, will say to their masters, you feed me you pet me, you shelter me, you love me, you must be a god. Cats, on the other hand, even though they say something similar, add something a little different twist to this. They will say, you feed me, you pet me, you shelter me, you love me. I must be a god. (laughs) In all jesting, as we look at this in a human comparison between the characteristics of how we perceive God and our relationship with Him, You know, even though cats don't specifically say they're God or even those of us who are believers and followers of Christ don't say that, sometimes our actions portray that we think it's all about us, don't we? We say that Jesus lives to make our lives safe. Jesus lives to make our lives comfortable. Jesus lives to make our lives easy, to make our lives soft. Cats think Jesus left the Father's glory for me he suffered for me he died for me he's gone back to heaven to build a mansion for me he's up there interceding for me and he's coming back again one day for me wow i wonder who he lives for he must live for me that's the basic mentality of those of cat theology but rather, the dog understands these things. Yes, even though God does all of those things for me and for us, a dog will understand, a, a person of this characteristic, one thing that is, is a key element about life that's found in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 16. It's written by the Apostle Paul For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and un- invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created. By him and for him. You see, it's all about him. And if we ever to understand what it is that's at the heartbeat of God, we have to debunk this myth that life and the Bible is all about me. even though it is part of what life in the Bible is about, it's really all about him. It's about giving him honor and glory. The second myth that we're going to have to uh, understand and debunk, helps us to understand uh, what is at the heartbeat of God, is that God is randomly waiting to send Jesus to earth again. Uh, A common myth that God is just randomly waiting up there in heaven. One day, He's just going to, whenever He chooses, send Jesus to come to earth again. Now this past week, we celebrated one of the greatest uh, events that has happened in history to date. The coming of God's Son to earth, Emmanuel. What a a tremendous celebration. And and most places throughout the world celebrate the coming, the first coming of Jesus to earth. But let me say that almost 2,000 years or plus on the other side of Jesus coming to earth, there's going to be a greater holiday one day when Jesus has his second coming to earth. We long for that day and we look for that day. But yet, in a period of 2,000 years, we have sometimes become a little bit anxious, a little bit uh, antsy, and a little bit uh, laxadaisy in our thinking of, well, I guess you know, I guess He can come at any time, and it's just kind of up to Him when He's going to come, and not, we don't really know what He's kind of waiting for, but it's just going to be a random thing. He's just going to choose today's the day. Hey, it's going to be it. I'm going to send my son Jesus to come to earth. Well, we need to study throughout Scripture to see what Scripture teaches us regarding the second coming of Christ. Let's take a look at a couple passages of Scripture In Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 11, as Jesus ascends up into heaven, we read in this this, uh, book of Acts, Men of Galilee, they said, being angels, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. So we know that one day Jesus will come again. It's, it's, It's told in the Scripture, and the promises that we read throughout Scripture always come true. So one day Jesus will come. We do know that. But the second thing we learn from Scripture about the second coming is that Jesus' return will come unexpectedly for unbelievers. Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1, 2, and 4, we read, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so this day should not surprise you like a thief. So even though His coming will be for many a surprise, those who are followers of Christ should be expecting the return of Jesus. And then a third thing we read about the coming of Christ again to earth is found in Matthew chapter 24, that no one knows the time nor date for His return except the Father in heaven. Did you know that? That Jesus Himself doesn't even know when he's going to come back to earth this is going to be a command coming from god the father and so through these passages of scripture we sometimes maybe formulate this idea that well we know he's coming again it's going to be a surprise for many Uh, we also read that no one knows not even jesus so it's just going to be a roll of the dice one day it's just going to be this is the day well that is a myth and we need to debunk this myth because Scripture teaches us further of why it is possibly that Jesus has not yet returned to earth and why the Father has not sent him. We read in uh, the, the the verses that that follow um, uh, about Jesus uh, sending his. Uh, Uh, coming back again to earth one day but that he'll come after many events and things take place Uh, and uh, before we we kind of get into that the 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 thought is is an analogy of that of a wedding Tony and I went to a wedding here the night before last and uh, you know you expect a bride to show up and a groom to show up and thus they're married and thus the wedding well in scripture that's kind of what's portrayed to us in in terms of the coming of Christ he being the groom will come for His bride, the followers that He has here on the earth. And when that takes place, He will take us up to heaven and there will be this great wedding of the universe, a celebration like no other celebration of every language and tongue and tribe and nation on the face of the earth uh, that will gather together and, and be one. And oftentimes as we uh, think about Jesus coming again, we think, well, we just kind of are waiting here at the wedding as the bride, but why is not the groom showed up? Why is not He attending the the wedding is there something that he's waiting for and so we just sometimes just sit back and we, we live our lives and we sit back and we wait and we wait for you and when is it you're coming we know you're coming soon but the reality is is that Jesus is already there he is waiting actually for us you see the other side of that is the bride that has to be a part of every tongue, tribe, language, and nation according to Scripture who will be there in heaven. In the book of Revelation, we read about this great multitude that no one can count, men and women from every tongue, language, tribe, and nation. And so until that happens, uh, we know that Jesus will not yet uh, return. I want to read Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 3, a passage of Scripture here, as Jesus is there sitting with His disciples on the Mount of Olives. Uh, Jesus, uh, as He shares with them uh, about the end of times and when His second coming will will take place, uh, we read in verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be a sign or the sign of Your coming in the end of the age? And then in the next ten verses that follow, Jesus begins to share all of the things that are going to take place before he comes again. We read about false prophets that will come in my name proclaiming I am the Christ, Jesus says. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but these are just the beginning, the birth pains, Jesus says. There will be earthquakes and famine in many places. There will be persecution of believers, and people will be put to death for my namesake. There will be betrayal and hatred, even, yes, among believers, and there will be an increase in wickedness, and the love of most will grow cold. As we look at all of these things that Jesus said are going to take place, if we analyze this, we think, well, this is straight out of the newspaper of our times. Certainly all of these things have taken place. But there's a verse that follows in verse 14 that we must understand to to, to grasp the essence of what Jesus is is sharing here to them and as a whole what God is sharing uh, to His family, to His children. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, the verse that follows, we read, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then... The end will come. You see here Jesus says that all nations on earth will have this opportunity to have the gospel presented to them before he comes again. The next logical question would be, well, hasn't the gospel been taken to all of the nations of the earth? Well, uh, in short, you know, if I had more time here I I would share. (laughs) But the short answer here is no. The gospel has not been presented to all of the nations of earth the earth in fact there are approximately 15,000 nations that could be found on the face of the earth we're not talking about countries these are nations the difference between a nation and a country a nation a country has geopolitical boundaries but yet nations are something that distinguish one group ethnic group from another whether it's language religion race uh, traditions what have you something that calls uh, us us and them them it distinguishes us and separates us as groups of people throughout the world. And as best can be found, there are more than 15,000 ethnic groups found throughout the globe. And this has been at the heartbeat of God since the populations of the earth began as the, as the people spread into the different portions of the land uh, from the Tower of Babel as they went forth to their, to their different uh, locations throughout the earth in different languages. He's been in this process all along of redeeming every one of them back to him in terms of groups of people. And out of this 15,000, just a couple years ago, that number uh, was found to be reduced to around 3,000 in number. So quite a large stride from 15,000 to 3,000. But uh, what is known today is that there are less than 600 of these nations who have yet to be reached with the gospel and presented to them. And at the pace of which we're seeing the gospel being taken to these places of the world, It will not be very soon, Uh, it, it will not be very long, should I say, until that number is at zero, where that task will be finished. The countdown is now going to zero. You see, this is the unfinished task. This is what is remaining for the job of God's people today. And so, is God randomly waiting to send His Son to earth, just on whatever day He feels like would be a really good day to do so? By no means. You see, actually, God is waiting on us, His church, to be obedient to fulfill the Great Commission of what He's told us to do. So as I mentioned at the onset, in order for us to understand what it is that's at the heartbeat of God, we have to understand that the Bible is not all about us. It's about Him. It's about giving Him glory. We have to also understand that God is not just randomly waiting to send Jesus to earth, but rather He's waiting for us. The ball is in our court. We've been served. And now it's up to us to finish the task that he's called us to do. And so if we ever in in our uh, thought process find ourselves thinking, you know, we wait and we're just waiting for you, well, maybe God is really the one who's waiting for us. We have to get over that myth. And then thirdly, a myth that we must overcome if we're going to fully understand what it is that's at the heartbeat of God is the myth that I am just one person and I really can't make that much difference. I'm just one person. I really can't make that much difference, can I? You see, Satan would love nothing more than for us to believe that we are insignificant in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, there is no one, not one, who is insignificant uh, in God's kingdom. We are all significant. We all have value and honor and worth and place in the global picture of what God is painting uh, here I remember an Old Testament professor in Bible college, Dr. Black was his name, and uh, he, he knew how to tell stories, but as we went through the characters of the Old Testament, uh, he, he mentioned one, one thing, one phrase that still sticks with me today. He said, one man plus God can defeat the enemy of a thousand. One man plus God can defeat the enemy of a thousand. He was referring to, as we got to that study in the Old Testament about uh, Samson, Samson when he took the jawbone of that donkey and he went after the Philistines and he conquered every one of them, 1,000 of them. he slain. There was a movie out a couple years ago. I don't know if anybody had a chance to see that. And It was like, whoa. (laughs) You talk about some superpowers there. Well, what was it? Was it Samson? No. It was one man plus God who defeated the enemy of 1,000. And throughout Scripture, we can find many men and women of faith who also believed and understood that with God, all things were possible. Think about Gideon. We know that story well. Gideon went in with his army of 10,000 to conquer the Midianites. What we sometimes don't realize is that there were 135,000 soldiers of the Midianites to conquer. That's, I mean, you're weighing those numbers. You have 10,000 and you have 135,000. Whoa, that's a big difference. But God says, ah, too many. And he keeps reducing that number down more and more and more. And it finally gets down to 300 men. But yet, those three hundred men with God defeated the enemy of one hundred and thirty-five thousand. None, insigni- none of us are insignificant. In kingdom work, think about Moses. Moses, an unlikely character, he said, "I can't speak. I'm not the man that you want to do this job." God, why may choose someone else? There's somebody more qualified to do this. But yet, he was the man, and finally, Moses took up the challenge. He understood that this was a call from God and something that he must do. And look how God used him because through this one man, God used him to be able to free all of the Israelites, over a million people, and free them out of slavery and taking them into a free land, into a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey where the descendants would continue on throughout uh, the face of the globe. And so Satan, had he had conquered the thought of each one of these individuals thinking they were insignificant, think of where The circumstances would have found themselves. It would have been quite different had Moses not stepped up to the plate. It would have been quite different had Samson not gone after the Philistine army. It would have been quite different had Gideon not conquered the Midianites. And over and over again, not only through Scripture, but also throughout history. And even in modern times, God is using men and women of faith to be used by Him to accomplish His purposes. We are all significant in God's kingdom. There is a a writer, he's actually a pastor, Tommy Kytus, Uh, he wrote a devotional called Attempt Great Things for God. I'd like to read for you this, this devotion that he wrote about the life of a missionary named William Carey. Listen as he writes. At a meeting of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s, a newly ordained minister stood to argue for the value of overseas missions. He was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, young man, sit down, you're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. That newly ordained minister was William Carey. And while the older minister could not see beyond the doors of his own church building, William Carey saw a spiritual hunger for the entire country of India and many places throughout the continent of Asia. And so for the next 41 years, he would attempt to do great things for God in the land. And with the help of God, Some of William Carey's greatest accomplishments were, number one, to help translate the Bible in 44 languages and dialects in India. 44. As we talk about those 15,000 peoples that are there, nations, ethnic groups, William Carey was responsible for 44 of them coming to know the gospel as he translated that in his lifetime. To translate the Scripture into one language would be a great achievement. 44? Also, he was able to establish... Uh, a college in India in Serampur, and it's still in operation today, that college. And it's the oldest college in India, as well as one of the first uh, degree-granting institutions in all of Asia. William Carey has come to be known as the father of modern-day Protestant missions, and he's inspired countless individuals with his famous motto. You may or may not have heard of this somewhere or another. He said, Expect great things from God, Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God, but attempt great things for God. I have a picture of this on my desk in, in my office. It's, it's a great inspiration to me on many occasions as I've just contemplated, Lord, this task is just way overwhelming, too challenging, too much Many of you are familiar with the mission organization that I'm so blessed to be a part of and direct, Disciple Makers. Plum Creek has been a great partner with us for, uh, this is our 30th year in ministry with Disciple Makers. And even beyond that, before we joined with Disciple Makers, Plum Creek has joined and partnered with us years prior to that. So for many years, uh, you have been a part of ministry with us and we're so grateful for that. And 20 plus years ago, uh, we had a shift in focus as we understood this task of fulfilling the Great Commission in going to the nations of the earth who have yet to be reached. Over these last 20 uh, plus years, uh, in the endeavors that God has allowed us uh, for His glory, we have seen over 20,000 baptized believers come to Christ uh, in Asia as a result of the ministry there, all for the glory of God. And I could stand here today and tell you countless men and women who have been used by God who have even had greater accomplishments in the Lord's kingdom, who have brought many more to the feet of Christ, people who are now residents in heaven because of their labor, but because they said, yes, I am going to expect great things from you, God, and I'm going to attempt great things for you. Satan would love nothing more for us to be distracted. He would love nothing more for us to think we are just an individual here on this earth passing through and we're just to live the life the best that we can and when we're gone, we're gone. So this myth must be debunked. We need to have the attitude that which we find of the Apostle Paul as he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So what is it that is at the very heartbeat of God that we set out in the onset here to try to define? Well, I think we can put it into one statement here. Read with me and silently as I read aloud. Because we have been blessed, we are to be a blessing to all the nations, so that He will send Jesus to earth once again to receive all peoples of the earth and take them to the wedding of the universe, where God will receive ultimate glory. My time is up. <laughs> let's let's end. <laughs> no, I've got to finish here though. Let's read that one more time. Because we have been blessed, we are to be a blessing to all of the nations, to every tongue, tribe, language, and nation. We are blessed, yes, as we read, we are to understand that blessing, but we are blessed to be a blessing. Why? So that God would receive glory. And so that He will then send Jesus to earth once again, because why? His, His bride is ready. There's representation from every tongue, tribe, language, and nation. He'll send Him again to earth. And He'll take them to heaven to be a part of that great wedding of the, of the universe, as we can call it, as the Bible describes, that feast that's going to take place. And ultimately, God will receive the glory that He so deserves. About a year ago, I had the privilege to be at a missions conference uh, out in uh, uh, California. Uh, a speaker by the name of Louis Giglio, who is a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, of Passion City Church, uh, shared a story uh, that I'd like to share with you in closing. He, went, uh, he and his wife went to a local movie theater there in Atlanta. He's an avid golfer, loves golf. This movie was about golfing. It was kind of like a pre-show that he got some tickets for, and he thought, hey, we've got to get there early. I want to get a really good seat. So they get there early, and you know how you go into the theaters, how they usually have like two aisles. You walk, you know, kind of like in a, in a stadium setting through this aisle, and then all of a sudden there are the seats on this side and the same through that side. Well, he comes through there, and he and his wife just decide to sit, you know, towards this one uh, section where, where, where the, the, the uh, aisle goes back out to the lobby. And as they're sitting there, they're thinking, we got here a little too early. <laughs> There's nobody here. But they notice one gentleman who's sitting almost on the opposite side there, and that gentleman kind of looks over and Waves and so they're like, "Hi, how you doing?" And so they're and they look and this gentleman just keeps on waving and thinking, "Okay, this is a little little strange." Well, uh, as he and his wife begin talking more and more, he he knows this man is really not looking at him but actually looking at his wife. He's thinking, "Hmm." this guy's trying to hit on my wife. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable about this. And so as he's getting a little nervous about what to do, he sees this man go out and down the the way and thinking, okay, whew, good, he's gone. Because <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I would have done. And all of a sudden... That's what happens. That gentleman comes on the other side of the aisle and sits right behind him. (laughs) And he's like, okay, now what? (laughs) And so he's looking and this gentleman's looking at them. And just as he's about ready to say something, the gentleman says, so, uh, you interested and anxious to see this movie? And he said, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, we, we are. We are. And he said, you know what? He said, I'm in the movie. You know I have a part in this movie and he said oh, oh really he said yeah yeah he said actually if you, if you watch the movie in about 15 minutes into the movie he said there's going to be a scene it's a bar scene and he said you'll see a, a waitress come out you know with some drinks on a on a uh, uh, a tablet there and if you look as soon as she passes in the in the background next to the bar there I am I'm standing up you can notice me there be looking for me so oh okay okay we will and so uh, after they finish that conversation some other people come on the other side and the gentleman gets up and he goes and he starts talking with them probably to say hey you know what I- I'm in the movie here uh, I- I'm really excited about this so you know they the lights go down and the movie starts and so they think okay well let's let's take a you know timer on here and see about 15 sure enough about 15 minutes in it comes to the bar scene, and like, hey, wait a minute, this is it. And here, the, the you see the uh, waitress kind of walking across the room, and all of a sudden, like, there, there, it's over. <laughs> it was just a split second, but wow, that he made a big deal about nothing, didn't he? I mean, for for the two seconds that he was claiming his name to fame in in Hollywood, but you know, he got to thinking, well, you know what though? For this gentleman, he was excited. Why? Because he was invited to be in the picture. He had a part in this great movie that was just uh, coming out in, in the theaters at that time, so he was very, very excited about that. In similar fashion, we are in the movie. We get a chance to be a part of God's big picture. What God has been doing all throughout time, throughout history of bringing peoples to himself. He has invited us to be a part of that. It's just a small window, but we have a part. None of us are insignificant. We all have a place. We have to recognize that we have to attempt great things for God, and we have to expect great things from him. God can use us in great and mighty ways. As we look at the world that is about us and we look about uh, the return of Jesus and thinking about what it is that's at the heartbeat of God, again, it is this. God is waiting for us, his church, to be obedient and fulfilling the great commission so that he could send his son Jesus to earth to uh, to, to collect the nations of the earth, to take them to heaven, to be a part of this great wedding celebration that one day will ultimately give the honor and the glory that God deserves. This morning, let me challenge you to expect great things from God. God is a big God. If you don't expect great things from Him, how can you attempt great things for Him? If you don't expect great things from Him, then go into the Scripture and see what a great God that He is. And if you can expect great things from God, then the challenge is to attempt great things from God. He has invited us to be a part of this global plan. Let's pray. Father, as we are here before you in your presence. We thank you for inviting us to be a part of this great uh, plan uh, from way back in the Old Testament to all the way the book of Revelation, what's to come in the future, we see unfolding as you're bringing the nations of the earth before you. And uh, sometimes it's through war, other times it's uh, through just the power of your Holy Spirit. Not only just individuals, but peoples representing these tongues and tribes and languages and nations that your son Jesus again reminded us when he was on this earth that we are to go out and make disciples of. And so Lord, as your church here at Plum Creek, I pray that you will give us boldness in our faith. I pray that you will help us to uh, expect you as the good God that you are, to do great things. And the Lord, give us that boldness to attempt great things for you in your name so that you might be glorified. So, Lord, use your church. Help us, Lord, to accomplish the task that you've called us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.